break them. Welcome back. Had to take a couple weeks off. NBA playoffs, as you know, or maybe you don't know, this is your first time listening. I'm from LA. I'm a big Laker fan. We are still in celebration mode. Rollins, you, uh, what team are you a fan of again? Uh, the Bucks, kind of. I don't really, I don't really watch Ooh, the NBA. Ah, the Bucks. Not really big on the NBA, though. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Not my jam. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I have with me today the hardest working man in all the boxing news breaking, the rated R superstar Ranger Rollins. Welcome to the podcast. What's up, you fucking Mark? Hey, all right. Well, he's uh, he's ready to go. I warmed him up. And uh, this is the Sunday Punch Podcast. My name is Angelo. I am the host. And uh, we have some boxing to talk about. That is uh, what we do on this podcast. And we are going to start with Emmanuel Navarrete. That's how they say it. Emmanuel Navarrete, he outpoints Ruben Villa. And oh my God, Rollins, you just you just thought so bad. You were just so convicted that Ruben Villa was about to walk up in that bubble and outbox Navarrete. And what happened? He got dropped two times, lost a decision. And I don't want to just single you out here because I think there are many people out there who felt very similarly to you that Ruben Villa is slick boxer, so good, so skilled, just... just was going to walk in there and give Emmanuel Navarrete a boxing lesson, which if you've watched him before, this didn't seem like it was a, a, an outrageous take. But here's the thing. If so many people saw that this was going to be the outcome and Ruben Villa got really just bulldozed in that fight, do you think Ruben Villa got exposed? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, uh, for large portions of the fight, he was doing exactly what I expect him to do is use his legs, use his jab, use his lateral movement, his ring generalship. He was making Neverett walk around in straight lines, throwing and missing big shots. It was just came to the fact that when it came to land the big counters and get respect, either Via didn't throw them because he had been discouraged by getting hit with the flash with the knockdowns, or um he didn't have the power to discourage Navarrete from continuing his, his march forward. But the basic dynamics of the fight, I mean, I, I picked Villa to win and I was pretty confident he would, but I always said that it wasn't because it was a 90 to 10 fight. I mean, I saw it as essentially 50, 50. It was a matter, it was a matter of who was going to, it was a clash of styles and a matter of who was going to have their style prevail. And I actually think for the majority of the fight, Via's style prevailed. It was it was just the differential in power and somewhat maybe a little bit of experience. Um, but I think if if those the two punches that knock down Via don't happen, Via wins on the scorecards. I mean, I know some people thought those scorecards were too close. I really didn't. Uh, I kind of stopped scoring. But for the second half of the fight, the announcers kept chalking it up to Navarrete on cruise control. And this this is a common theme for Navarrete's fights. And it's always chalked up the same way by this particular announced crew, which is all his own cruise control. And I think the truth is, is that like, he's just, that is who he is. He's going to look very ordinary and be made to look very 
amateur at times, and that that did happen at large large stretches of the fight. But the physical gifts that he has, the, the long reach, the awkward punches, the punching power for the weight. Clearly, I mean, he had he had enough pop to hurt Via, but I think a lot of it was the fact that he didn't see either of those punches coming. I mean, one was extremely awkward uppercut that I don't think most people would have seen coming. Um, the left hook was a little bit more of a case of um, getting caught throwing the wrong punch and having the wrong punch come back, which is a little bit more typical. But I don't think Via necessarily got exposed. I, I'm still not. I mean, he lost the fight, but I'm still not convinced if they fought again that it wouldn't be another fight where it came down to a few points here or there. I mean, if he doesn't get any knockdowns, Via could easily win on the scorecards. Um, and it's just it's just that type of fight. So I don't I think Via doesn't have any particular skill that's going to set him apart to to dominate uh, over world level opponents. But he's very competent, and I so I think like calling him exposed would imply like imply that he had a certain level of hype or uh, professional pedigree that he, he doesn't he didn't have he wasn't expected to have he was a guy with small promoters who was quasi built up on showbox shows, but not even as like a showbox attraction. He was just a guy on showbox. So for him to come against a, a world champion like Navarrete, I, I, I wouldn't consider that being exposed, but that's, it's a matter of what word you use on post. Um, okay. First of all, I will acknowledge to those of you listening that we will get to other topics like Wilder Fury 3. We're going to get to uh, the Canelo trial and the latest on that. And obviously, we will talk about Lomachenko and Vasily, uh, and Teofimo Lopez in just a bit. But to address this, you tried to cover your tracks there and say, well, how did Via get exposed if we don't know, like, there was not anything to be exposed because he wasn't overhyped. And that's a good point to make, and I'll, I'll let you have that. But I'm going to pose that, yes, he did get exposed in, in, a, in a way. And what I mean by that is a blueprint for beating him appears to be like we now know what it is. And I don't know that everybody could execute it, but I think that there are quite a few. Well, there are some guys at 126. And look, Via probably competes at the high level of 126 where this is actually going to matter. Because if he goes back to fighting on Showbox, then fine. None of what I'm about to say matters. What we saw is Emmanuel Navarrete, who's not very skilled. I don't care what anybody says. He's not very skilled. But he don't need to be. He has tremendous physical gifts. He's big. He's strong. I mean, he, look at his body. The guy looked pathetic in there. And, and like, I, you know, I'm saying that because, like, this the, normally guys, they, they shred every single bit of fluid they can out of their system and they got muscles upon muscles and all of this stuff and Navarrete said I'm just gonna lose the weight I'll show up I don't need to get shredded I know I can fight and notice I didn't say box he knows he can fight and what he did is he just brought the fight to Via and what we learned is that Via's got a little bit of dog in him because he kept coming but his skills aren't enough to keep a guy like Navarrete from hurting him to keep a guy like Navarrete from walking forward without any care in the world of what was coming back. And Via landed some really nice shots. The uppercut, or was it the uppercut or the hook? Um, one of the shots where he got dropped, he landed a really clean counter. 
And Navarro was just like, whatever. I can take this. And, you know, he hurt Villa, and he also was able to take the good work Villa was doing, which he did do good work in the fight as a boxer, quote-unquote boxer, and you know what I'm talking about when I say that. When he boxed, okay, he landed four little, little good jabs, a little short right hand. Navarrete lands one shot to the body, and it just makes you forget about all of that because Navarrete was able to deal quality shots and didn't do any of the quantity stuff that Villa was doing. And, you know, furthermore, and I don't know how you're going to take this. I don't know if you listened to the podcast that I've already done on our Patreon feed. But I said this last night, and I have another one to add to it. Ruben Villa is a lot more like Tevin Farmer and Pauli Malignaggi than he is any other fighters that I can compare him to. Do you think that's fair? Um, Malignaggi, maybe. Uh, Farmer, mm, I don't see that. But I understand where you're going. You know, just a guy who's got good skills, but he does not have the power to have his skills really shine. And, like, as good as he is defensively, and he is good defensively, he did some really nice things in there. I, I mean, I could point out to some things that he really screwed up in the fight, but for the most part, V is a good fighter. But, like, what good are those skills if you can't get anybody's respect? When a guy like Navarrete can just come in there and and land these shots at weird angles and you have no like obviously you know never can drop anybody that's fine but you can't adjust to where he's not going to catch you again to where he's not going to be doing the same things that he was doing early in the fight i didn't see via do that well i mean he won the second half of the fight on the scorecards and he got dropped twice in the first four rounds and didn't get dropped the rest of the fight so i'm not really sure how you can say that you think that okay I'll say that maybe Villa won the second second half of the fight, but I think that it's up for debate. I, I mean, the judge the judges scored it that way. I'm, I'm okay. Not okay. I'm not saying the judges are always right, but I'm saying all three judges had him winning the second half of the fight. I mean, maybe, but I think it's it's still really close second half of the fight when Navarrete's still landing these hard shots on Villa. And I've you know I've talked about this in the past. One of the things that really well actually Showtime really has done a good job in bringing this to the forefront is being able to hear the effect that these punches have like without uh you know i guess the crowd really i don't know what the word is but really taking taking it away you know you saw when Jamel Charlo landed those shots on on Jason Rosario if you watch the video and actually hear the impact of those punches you can kind of see like oh wow okay that jab to the body was not was far more powerful than it looked on TV so I, but I still think like Ruben Villa, it's, it's going to be hard for this guy because it doesn't appear capable of getting respect and he's not unhittable. So he's still going to give guys opportunities to land on him. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think essentially what happened was like Villa had an idea for how to win the fight and he was, he was not as aware of he wasn't cautious enough to the dangers of what was coming back at him. And I don't, he had never been in a, like a really competitive fight. He had always just outboxed everybody he had fought in the professionals. And I mean, from the way that he was talking and the way that people around him were talking, they thought he was going to win and outbox him easily. So I think, I mean, it's like the hyper awareness of, of understanding how dangerous every punch coming back at you is. 
And I think he he became more aware of that, obviously, after he had been hurt. And I think that that helped him box more efficiently. And what that was was a lot of winning rounds by utilizing a, a stiff right jab and and circling away from Navarrete's power. And whether you say, like, that'll win every round or – I mean, it makes it very easy to lose a couple rounds if you let him land – like you said, a few really good power shots where it's clear that those shots were more effective, but that doesn't happen every round. And so, I mean, that's essentially how how Villa won most of those rounds, the, the rounds that he did win in the fight. And so I think Villa is like, I mean, he's like, uh, I don't know. You can pick whatever sport you want. I was going to think about an NBA team, but then I didn't bother. And you remembered uh, you're a fan of the Bucks, and uh... Well, no, but, but uh, yeah, whatever. Make whatever joke you want. But point being is like, <laughs> point being is he's not the Laker, but that doesn't mean that he can't win. But when you're halfway through your first big fight against a real top level person or like top level opponent, and and just then you start to realize how important it is, or like it it sinks in, not just on a like a theoretical level, but on like a practical level, you're in there you start to realize like, wow, I need to do a lot more of this. And I really, people said you need to be dangerous. You need to be careful of this, but, but I kind of wasn't enough. And now, now I realize like, wow, I really do. And so, I mean, I think part of that is like, it was a big jump up in, in competition for him. And like you said, he's going to have problems at this level, but that doesn't mean that he can't beat top level guys. I mean, particularly at featherweight, there's nobody, there's nobody that's a complete fighter uh, that is like untouchable at featherweight. And so, I mean, Villa's a guy who ha- he's very solid in a lot of areas and he has to learn how to win his way. And so I think, I mean, this was hopefully for him, which I think it will be, cause I mean, he's a hardworking and humble person from like all of the publicity and like public, uh, media he does. I think it'll be just a learning lesson. And I think that's it. It already bolds well, the fact that he did better in the second half of the fight. And so, I mean, yeah, you can shit on him in the sense like where you're coming from, where you're comparing everyone to being the top guy in the division. But the way I look at it is he could, he could have won that fight. Like it is, it is possible if you rerun that fight, he wins that fight. And I think that it's going to be true of him at the top of the division for as long as he's seriously in the sport, pretty much is like, there are a lot of guys that are world champions or world level that he could beat, but he also could lose to a lot of them too. It just depends on how the fight plays out. And I think this is a learning experience and we'll see help. He's not, he'll probably have to work his way back up the rankings in order to get another shot. And when that happens, we'll see how he does, but I don't know. I, I, I like the style of boxing he has. Uh, I like his story, obviously. I, mean, I think I think everyone yeah, you're probably a can affect to his story. And so, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not denying that he lost the fight, and I'm not denying that his weaknesses were. I mean, his weaknesses. I guess to use your word, were exposed. That was the reason that he lost the fight. But I don't think that. I think that he has enough skills and he can learn how to fight away uh, and make adjustments to where he can be successful at the, at the top level. You're a big baseball guy. Yeah. 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 Big, you, you uh, Brian Kenny? Baseball. 
Yeah, I, mean, I like you know, Brian Kenny on Quick Pitch of, a lot more than one, I like him on. I like one of you a lot, well, and I dislike one of you a lot, a lot. Okay, but I think this is a comp that I think you'll both appreciate. You ready? Yeah. Ruben V is basically Joey Cora. He had a nice little okay. run. He he made an All Star game once. Couldn't hit home runs. The the one year he hit over ten, he made the All Star game. Solid defender. Okay on base guy. You can put him at the top of your lineup maybe. And, and he'll, 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 he'll you know he, he's just passable. That's what Ruben Villa is. You're not expecting anything big out of him. By the way, Joey Cora is not the cheater Alex Cora who managed the the Red Sox. Just want to make sure that that's clear for for you all. But I mean that's just what he is. And you know there's a there's a bunch of different versions of Joey Cora out there that I could have used, but that was the one that came to me. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean I think I think that's fair. I think he he's the definition of like maximizing the skills that he has. And the other thing that I noticed during the fight was the thing about Navarrete is stepping up to 126 is he finally is fighting guys that can stand eye to eye with him. But even standing eye to eye with Navarrete and being like the same height, Villa is handicapped because his style relies on outboxing people and he's really not going to get people's respect in the pocket. But he has short reach for his height and not just because Navarrete has an extremely long reach. So it was like very apparent. But he would really, for his wingspan, he would be a lot better suited if he could somehow make 122, which, I mean, obviously I don't think he can, unless he would. Um, I think he can. I don't think he wants to. And this is the kind of performance where it's like, oh, I like I didn't really train the way I was at 122, and I still beat the hell out of this guy? I'm good here. Which could be bad for, for Navarrete, uh, because he gets this false sense of security there, but fine. Yeah, no, I was talking about Via. Like, oh, Via, Via, sorry, sorry. Because, because Via, he really does not want to be in the pocket. The fact that he has, I, uh, I, I don't know the specifics, but I, it's looked to me like he had a shorter than average wing, like reach for a featherweight. It is, 66 and a half inches is not very long. And so, yeah, for his style, it's like, he can maximize his, his ability, and I think that's what you were getting at at the Joey Cora comparison was he's a guy who he does everything he can to maximize his ability and then the chips fall where they may and he's good enough to have some success but obviously not be um a world beater but i think one of the things that stuck out in the fight was it's going to hold him back that he he really doesn't want to be exchanging in the pocket and yet he has what appeared to be a shorter than average reach for the division yeah via definitely i mean Definitely, the length of Navarrete really posed a major problem for him. And it didn't allow him to be effective at the style that he chooses to use frequently. Um, anyway, so we, we kind of touched on this, but like, do you, how do you feel about Navarrete at 126? Is this guy uh, inserted into amongst the top guys, or do you need to see more? I mean, I think I know what Neverett is, but that doesn't mean that I'm convinced by him. Um, there are two comparisons that came to mind when watching him, and one is he's like Ruben Sierra. Dion- no, no. Oh, that's a funny. <laughs> uh, that's a very like random. <laughs> there are not many people looking at that, but uh, <laughs> but what I was gonna say was uh, he, he's he's like. Uh, 
Deontay Wilder of 126 in that he looks terrible in every moment that he doesn't look great. And he does shit that doesn't make sense and really shouldn't make sense. And it's a lot less practical to do that at 126. Uh, whereas when you do it at heavyweight, the whole reason that stuff like that works is because the power is just the power. It's an absolute. There's no, I mean, once you get to be a certain size, you can either hit hard or you can't. Whereas in the lower weight divisions is really generally not the case. There's not people that have just outsized power generally. And I don't think Navarrete really does. And the other person that came to mind was Jarrett Hurd. And not because necessarily he fights exactly like Hurd, because he really doesn't. I think he's actually like a lot more creative and skill isn't the right word, but I think he has a lot of a lot of like fighting techniques ingrained in him that are creative and effective that I mean, Hurd has in a different way, but not to get too bogged down in it. But the main reason I compared him to Hurd in my mind or that comparison came to mind was Jared Hurd is someone who every time I've ever seen him box with very few exceptions, I picked him to lose and he gets outboxed by everyone he ever fights. And it's just a matter of somehow he kept winning and like I, like I picked him to lose to Tony Harrison, to Austin Trout, Arislandi Lara. Uh, and he wins all those fights, not because he's the better boxer, but because at the division, he has attributes that allow him to do things that other people can't do. And not that Navarrete does the same things, but that that description fits him as well. I don't think that he's ever going to outbox in the in the conventional sense anyone at 126, at least not anyone at the world level. And for that reason, I'm I'm not going to believe it until he does it. Like, I'm not going to believe that he could outbox Kid Galahad for 12 rounds and, and win the fight. I'm not going to believe that he could outbox Gary Russell Jr. I'm not going to believe that he can outbox uh, Warrington isn't even a skilled boxer. And I, and I know that Warrington would outbox him. And so I disagree with what you just said there, but I mean, I well, think, but, but, but if you just let me finish, so, I mean, I have him. Okay. He's in the top 10 for sure. He's borderline top five, but I'm not convinced that he would be via in a rematch. I'm not convinced that he, he would outbox Max Sayo. I'm not convinced he would outbox Jesus Rojas. I'm not convinced that he would, he would outbox a lot of people who are very not great boxers. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I will say that to give him his credit, whatever, he's like fifth in the division, in my opinion. And he could beat he could beat all of them. He could. And I acknowledge that. But I wouldn't I wouldn't pick it to to be my prediction. And until I see it with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe it because the ingredients don't make sense to me. Well, I mean, the only thing I'll say, I agree with what you said. Uh, the only thing I will say, though, no, you don't. I do I'll say you agree when you don't. No, I, the only part I disagreed with is that I think Josh Warrington could outbox him 100%. And, like, here's how I know people who don't actually follow boxing. And it's not, like, a slight on you. I don't expect you to go back and watch, like, a featherweight's fights from early in their career. But, like, Josh Warrington's career, he started out as a guy who could not punch. It was a major thing when he was, like, 14-0 and had zero knockouts. And that was his gimmick. And he just outboxed everybody. And granted, this is on the British domestic level, and there's certainly levels to, you know, boxing ability. But for 
regardless of that, Josh Warrington was able to win fights because he could box and he wasn't dropping or stopping anybody. And I think over like as he's developed power and he's figured out more of how to leverage his shots and things like that and he's gotten stoppages, um, we've forgotten the early part of his career. And I believe that if confronted with a, a, an opponent that forces him to, to box, he can do that. And so I think that he could outbox Navarrete. Now, that fight, I think, plays out like would be like every time that fight played out, it would get a different result, I believe. But that's neither here nor there. I agree with everything else he said. Shakur Stevenson demolishes Navarrete. Like, Andre Ward was really trying not to uh, bring that up during the fight. But you could tell on commentary, like, that's all he wanted to say because he's such a proud papa. He yeah, really- I mean, I think I think that's... He, Shakur is the person who left the division that makes everything I said about both Villa and Navarrete kind of pointless because I think he's the type of complete fighter who is elite at, at certain attributes that these flawed but fun guys, like, it kind of... The parody kind of goes away. But yeah. he's no longer in the division... I don't know. I'd be curious to see um, get, to Gary Russell outbox him. I mean, we'll never see that fight, but I would just be curious to see it. It'd be fun. One, the fastest man in the division versus the slowest human on earth, or the slowest person in the division. Sorry, I will say I'm Joe Joyce has, has an issue with that. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, basically, featherweight right now was the NFC East. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, who who broke their ankle though? <laughs> That that was that was that was a junior featherweight. The guy broke his leg. Uh, maybe he moves up. Hey, he's a big best guy. Wish, best wishes to Dak. All right, no 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 jokes on Dak. I mean, you just made one, but okay. Well, yeah, that's that's what you do. You make the joke and then you say no joke. Uh, to quote Jacoby, "You can be mean if you're funny. That won't work." Yeah. All right. I don't know if I was, but we'll take it. Uh, did we miss anything on the undercard? I thought. Uh yeah, I'm like Zombek Alim Kanuli. I loved him as an amateur. I couldn't care less about that guy. As a pro, like relax. Look at the knockout. He got hit with like two shots in that uh uh in the exchange. So that dude needs work. He's eight and zero. And again, everyone needs to realize that the fights you're watching on these undercards should not be televised. They would not have been televised five years ago. Okay. You'd have to track them down on YouTube, and you'd be so happy that you managed to find the shitty uh, cap of the stream that was illegal with, like, you know, the little watermarks all over the place. Um, And it'd help you to forget this, but, like, Alam Kanuli needs work, so there's no point in, like, having any sort of crazy discussion on him. Elvis Rodriguez, I mean, that, that was really cool matchmaking there. Um, I don't know if that guy's any good. We do need to see him get tested a little more. Lorenzo's... I like I like I like him though. I like him. I've seen him several times now, and I know that they're showcasing him a certain way. So I'm not going to go off the deep end, but I will say he, I, I like the way he looks. His offensive skill set. The nice. To to you know repeat something Tom says all the time. Top rank's really good at figuring out how to get the results that they want when they want them. And like Alan Canuli, Rodriguez, they both got knockouts. I don't think that was any surprise that 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 was the result that they got. Maybe they feel a little disappointed with um, Lorenzo Simpson uh, technically being down in the fifth round, round, winning a decision. Uh, Chuck's problem, and uh, one of our pals has tried to tell me repeatedly that 
Chuck's trying to go down and wait, and that's where he'll be effective. But, like, I really don't see it with him. Like, I just don't. And I, I could be proved wrong, but, you know, lack of power as a prospect uh, makes you wind up like Ruben Villa. So, we can move on, unless you have anything to say there. I don't have anything to say about Chuck, no. All right, well, let's talk about the events circulating the uncertainty of Wilder and Fury 3. So, let me just ask you this, and I'll pick up the slack where you may leave something out. But what are the facts of the situation for Wilder Fury 3? Let's lay the groundwork. All right, so if some of this is coming from Bob Arum, and the way that he's laying, Bob Arum's a notoriously unreliable narrator, but in this case, what he said lines up with what I believe to be true. And some of it is not necessarily in his favor. So some of this uh, is from him, but I'm, I'm going on the basis that it's correct. But um, so the original rematch, well, I believe, and I, this is a inference that I've made, but well, I believe that the original rematch had a six month window to happen. So the fight is in February. The rematch has happened more or less by July. So the original date for the rematch before the pandemic was in July. Then, apparently, because of Wilder's biceps injury, there was a 90-day um, uh, postponement clause for something like an injury in the rematch clause. And so taking those 90 days takes you from uh, the middle of July to like the first week of October. So then that was the second date that when you see Fury talking about three dates, that was the second date. But collectively, PBC Top Rank, ESPN, and Fox all wanted to wait until December. And this is where it, it's a little bit unclear because Aram implies or says we moved it. And so it was a collective decision amongst both parties, whereas... Uh, some people on Fury's side have have asserted that it was Wilder who moved it. That's not the way that Aram characterized it. So anyways, the third date was December 19th, um, and this was decided at some point during the summer. Then college football, which was uncertain to come back or not, comes back. The networks, ESPN and Fox, know this at some point in September, and so they come back to tell Aram and their partners with PBC, hey, guys, that's college football championship weekend. There's four conference championship games, I think maybe even five. Um, and there's also NFL playoff games, I think that day, too, that, or maybe the next day. I don't know. So for some reason, ESPN and Fox tell them this date is not going to work for us now that we have these other properties back. So. There's two dates in January, uh, January and a date in February that you can use, but you can't use this date. And so at that point, Aram takes this to Fury and says, hey, there's these dates that we can reschedule to. And Fury says, no, I want to box in December. So I'm not fighting Wilder. I'm going to box in the UK. And Wilder, meanwhile, is still essentially waiting to fight Fury, uh, Shelly Finkel is still interested in fighting Fury, uh, thinks that's the plan. Bob Arum said that he would prefer to do the Wilder fight next in the U.S. as opposed to 
Fury taking this whatever tune-up fight in December in the UK, it's pretty much Fury's the one who's made this decision that rather than wait one more month and do a pay-per-view in the U.S. against the third fight against Wilder, um, that he would rather box in the U.K. And apparently because of the, the way that this contract worked, that October postponement, once it went from an October postponement to a December postponement, at that point, it was no longer legally binding. It was just an agreement between the two parties. Now, Fury apparently is no longer a part of that agreement or not interested in it. And so he's not legally obligated to fight Wilder next at this point since the October extension of the rematch clause has now run out. That's my understanding of like the underlying facts of the situation. You can let me know if I missed anything. So we haven't really talked about this, uh, you know, going through over all of the facts of the situation, all that stuff and the timeline of things. And what you all said lines up basically with my understanding of the situation. And so there's a couple of things that people need to be clear about because there is the actual, like what is happening here? There's the, what the, um, just the simple fact, the five word explanation of it. And then there's the PR spin. And there's clearly a lot of PR spin that's happening right now. And it's coming from the, the Fury side of things. And it, you know, this is there, they have the right to do this. Um, but for whatever, you know, whatever Fury wants to fight in this in December. Okay. Now the thing that I find really interesting about this situation is that initially Bob Arum was the one who kept coming out and saying, we want to do this in front of a crowd and it, we're going to push it. And we are approaching, or well, at least we have approached the, the time in the U S now where if you go to the right place, you can get yourself a crowd. And the fight now, more than ever, it, well, since the pandemic has begun, this fight n- now more than ever seems realistic. And the things that Bob Arum was saying about the fight s- sound totally feasible. He said Raiders Stadium, Allegiant Stadium is what it's called. We'll do it at a smaller capacity. That's exactly what Spence is doing in uh, for his fight. It's exactly what they're doing with Tank's fight. Lower capacity, big venue. So you can properly keep people distanced. And, you know, the real discrepancy here is where people, uh, they make the mistake of thinking that Wilder's side doesn't want this. And that's really not the case because, um, and even Aram, in what he's saying, it sounds like he's at the behest of the networks. And that's how this, like, this is how it's worked from the start, is that ESPN and Fox They're the ones calling the shots here. They're the ones that um, decide these big fights. And it's why when the networks come together and they see uh, a a reason to work together, that things just move. Mayweather-Pacquiao was going to happen until the two networks really just got on board and said, hey, okay, we'll make this work. And that's what's happening here. And so the you know it's ridiculous the 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 reality is and look nobody's wrong here i think like you could depending on how you feel about wilder and fury side you could definitely chalk it up and blame the other but i don't think anybody's wrong here i think if what we believe is true there's technically no contract that stipulates that fury has to now fight wilder in december and um 
And even so, like we're at the point where maybe it just isn't realistic to do in December because these guys wouldn't have enough time to train. And if Fury's committed to saying, well, I'm not, I have to fight once more by the end of the year. I don't know for what reason that may be, but he just says, I'm committed to fighting by the end of the year. So be it. He's told that's well within his rights to do. And Bob Arum as his promoter, one of his promoters, uh, you know, his responsibility is to fulfill those wishes or come up with some sort of offer to entice Fury to say, okay, well, I will wait until the networks give us a date to fight Wilder. Wilder's team uh, well, is... Go on. Well, I was going to say, well, the, the, if he wants to fight in December, I and there's nothing contractually preventing him from doing it, and he wants to take a tune-up in the UK or whatever, that's totally fine. Where I take issue it is... He says he wants to fight in December, and then he wants to fight Joshua. And so, from how I see it, I don't understand why why there's like an excuse, or why there's not more, um, not criticism, but more skepticism with how Fury's approached the situation because he's being told that he could fight in January in a pay-per-view in America against Deontay Wilder who gave him two voluntary shots at the title. And what he's choosing to do is instead fight one month earlier. I think I six weeks exactly or something like that earlier against a nobody, a relative nobody. I mean, it's going to be someone ranked high enough that they can call it a world. But yeah, they can call I mean, he's the former European champion. That's like who we're talking about here. Okay. And, Mm. And then he's, he says that he's just done with Wilder. And I think like that is where you lose me because this, the situation, I mean, the situation isn't over between them. What they did was they went through a pandemic. They negotiated different dates as they came. They were all in agreement. They were all in agreement that this was the working. I mean, even Aram is saying this is the working idea. We're waiting until we can have a crowd at Raiders Stadium to do the third fight, it'll be a first fight at Raider Stadium. And then at the 11th hour, Fury pulls out this thing that he's just not doing it and that he's just not interested in it, in it at all. And to me, it just seems like a strange way to do business. And I mean, this is kind of like par for the course with Fury, where everyone involved, including Frank Warren, thought that there was going to be an immediate rematch with Wilder the first time. And that was Wilder's prerogative. It was not contractual, just like the first fight wasn't. It was Wilder's prerogative. It was not contractual. And he was willing to give him the immediate rematch. And then at the 11th hour, unbeknownst to anyone else on on his promotional, on Fury's promotional side, Fury has this deal with NTK and, and Top Rank, which then throws a spanner in it. And it takes, he takes these tune-up fights where he gets paid up scenes out of the money. And it takes another there year were fights to that get he needed too. Well, sh- sure, but he takes the this route where he's he's making this money and he's fighting lower level opposition, and then finally the fear the wilder fight comes and he wins it, and everyone is expecting there to be a rematch. It's in the contract. Everyone is has there's been two networks that have come together. There have been two sides of the street that have come together to, to have this event. It was understood that it was a two-part event, regardless of who won. It was, there was going to be a third fight. It was going to be 
uh, one one network took the lead the first fight, the other network takes the lead the second fight, etc. And it's just so it's it's par for the course for Fury, but also just bizarre that we that it was negotiated the whole way until and understood as business partners all the way until Fury could get out of it and now contractually could get out of it and now he just has Aram doesn't understand why he wants to do this but Fury just has these other ideas of what he wants to do and I mean it's bad for the networks if if the networks that had come together under this agreement why would they work together again in the future if there's bad faith business going on and why would the promotional entities work together if there's bad faith business going on and just in general like why why would Joshua f- sign a contract with Fury like when at every turn I mean it, he didn't fight the the Klitschko rematch now he wants to do this it, it would be one thing if it was taking the December fight was still then do the Wilder fight whatever in February or March or whatever and then do the Joshua fight Joshua still has two mandatories to fight there's no reason that that fury wilder the third one shouldn't happen before there's this this unification fight so that's the part where you lose me is where fury just says he's done with wilder it's like i i don't know where fury gets off and i don't know where the lack of criticism comes for for how he behaves himself in business but it's bad for it's i mean this isn't my main concern what i'm hanging my hat on but more people should understand that it's bad for the sport to have people that negotiate in bad faith and that behave bizarrely in in negotiating fights because it makes business going forward that much more difficult. Right, and especially if you, you know, what are the fights that everybody wants to see? Well, they're the ones that deal with usually two networks having to work together. And if this is um, the case, you know, if you're Fox and ESPN, why do you, like, you know, Fox... Why would they want to do business with ESPN again if they can't get, you know, ESPN, like, they got the first pay-per-view with the agreement that the second one was going to be a Fox production, okay? Then for for the ESPN side of things, that's pay-per-view money that they were counting on that now they have to look at Bob Arum and say, well, where is it? You said you were going to give us this. This, this was what you were supposed to deliver, and now you're not because Fury's gone off and done this. Here's something else that I was thinking of, and just like, you know, the perception of things. Remember when Andy Ruiz beat Anthony Joshua? And for weeks and months, it felt like that rematch could not get signed and there was the bickering over money. But, you know, seeing as how Fury played his situation out, why didn't Andy Ruiz just keep waiting? Because then, at least now, we know there's a precedent he could have just waited and then he didn't have to do the rematch. And then he could have unified all the titles with Wilder or fought Ariola. I don't know. But he could have done either of those things. He could have done whatever he wanted because it yeah. appears that these rematch clauses, you know, are only good if you choose to abide by them. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like a legal beagle to use a term that Fred has been using on Twitter. Um, so I, I'll kind of leave it that, at that because I'm not, a, I'm not, I mean, I haven't well, read any of these contracts. The, I'm not a lawyer. You can speak to the, the the differences in the reactions between the two fan bases or the fan base in general of how that situation was was perceived and now this one. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, people thought that Ruiz 
would be a snake if he didn't give AJ the third fight. And I mean, let's be honest, part of that is is dishonest um, and people not liking Wilder. And also part of it is, I mean, there's there's legitimate cause to say Fury beat him very badly last fight, so it kind of takes some of the shine off the third fight. But that doesn't change the underlying like nature of the situation, which is amicable business partners and in particular while they're being like particularly uh giving to fury in the situation that fury was coming from at the beginning of this saga to now it doesn't make a lot of like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go the path that fury seems to be going but the other thing i just want to say was the timeline of it all and I find this interesting and I, and because I don't have any insight into the contracts, I will just comment on what is publicly available. And that is the first story that I saw where Bob Arum said that just the networks, uh, ESPN and Fox advised top rank and PBC that December 19 would not work. It was a date that was not going to be feasible for the pay-per-view. The first news story I saw on that and the quotes on it from Arum were on September 30th. And if we're to believe Aram's most recent comments and the articles that came out today, the extension, the 90-day extension in the contract that extended the rematch clause was until October 3rd. That was the second working date that they decided to push back to December in the hopes of getting crowds. So the difference in the date between when Aram said December 19 wasn't going to work and when supposedly the fight had to happen contractually before there was no longer an obligation on Fury's side was, whatever, four days, three days, whatever that is. And so I find that interesting. If you put on your uh, tin baseball cap and you think, what if, what if, maybe not Aram, or maybe I mean, you can take the conspiracy as far as you want. But if this was a conceded plan to get out of the third fight all along, it actually makes more sense in this scenario where there's a pandemic and then where there's a question about crowds, comparing it to Andy Ruiz, to go along as if you're being an amical business partner and then pushing the date and saying, oh, well, no, we'll actually, we'll be, it, we will lose a lot more money on the guarantees and the contracts if we do it now, but we, or we need an extension. Okay. But the extension even then won't work as great as if we move it a couple more months down the line. And then immediately after the contract, cause supposedly the contractual obligations expired on October 3rd was today, October 3rd. 13th and we heard a couple days ago fury saying that he wasn't going on in a cut so it seems like as soon as it became legally possible for fury to to not do this third fight he's saying he's not going to do it and from the information we have available again from fury's promoter bob arum the difference in time that we're talking about between a date that that they're given for the for the third wilder fight and for the fight that he's planning on doing apparently in the UK is six weeks. So take that for what it is. Fury apparently is in his rights to do that. But any, anyone who, who proclaims themselves a fan of the sport and wanting to see the best fight the best and all this other shit 
that they say is are you're looking at a tune-up cupcake opponent in a homecoming fight versus the trilogy that everyone had always agreed to and the reason the only logic behind fury having to do it is uh, he's not contractually obligated to do it which for most fights most fighters are not contractually obligated to do it but they still fight and because the difference is six weeks and he says he needs to fight this year is that really that important i don't know does he have some contract with mtk that's based on some endorsement with some saudi prince that says he needs to fight again this this calendar year i don't know i don't know why that six weeks is so goddamn important to fury but it's it's kind of a shame that if if his plan is to just skip out on wilder and and wait for Joshua. I don't think the Joshua fight is going to happen until at least June of next year. So the timing doesn't make any sense to me if you're just looking at it from a rational point of view. But then again, I know Fury's not a rational person, and Fury doesn't operate with many rational people in his circle. So it yeah, make sense. I mean the you know the the explanation that nobody wants to give, but is the most feasible, is that fighting Wilder again is really risky. And I know Fury beat him like the first time, or or uh, in the in the rematch. Fury. Well, and for the for the record, you just for the listeners, Angelo is like a hundred percent positive that Fury beats him in the third fight. Oh, so, for sure. So d- this is not this is not like a Wilder someone justifying that they think Wilder's going to win or something. It's no, just... I've picked Fury every single fight, and I'll pick him every single time that they fight. Like I don't pick power punchers. I never pick power punchers. I'll make the exception for Deontay Wilder occasionally. But I don't pick power punchers. I don't see it. And I was I don't I don't even know if I gave a prediction on Navarrete and Villa, did I? I didn't hear you give one, but you you did always like tell me that he was gonna be exposed as a jabroni, but I don't know if that means that you're gonna pick Navarrete. Uh you always told me that I was higher on him than you were, or something of that nature. I don't know specifically about the fight. Um oh wait. I, I, I'm I'm searching for um Navarrete's name in our chat. And and it's all all everything that's popping up is you. <laughs> yeah. No, but look, I think this is the most reasonable. And if you're a Fury fan, you don't say this. You're an idiot. Okay, you're just an idiot. Because this is the obvious explanation. Deontay Wilder's risky. Fury could box outbox him for twelve rounds and batter him from pillar to post. Deontay Wilder lands one right hand. The whole fight is over. Fury's hopes of getting two fights out of Anthony Joshua gone gone because you know if he loses to to wilder well wilder is not going to stick around he's probably going to say well i'm not this is too risky to fight fury i'm just going to go go fight aj and do two more fights over there so the most realistic thing is fury sees well i have an out here i you know it's a small window and i kind of look a little bit like a weenie by saying i don't want to fight wilder because that's really what he's saying He's saying, I don't want to fight Wilder. The reason for it that we've heard is not very good, but it's risky. They, like You're messing up your money. And sure, you could counter what I say by talking about, well, you know, Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury, third fight is going to still make a lot of money. And like, you know, people want to talk about 17 million at the gate, blah, 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 blah. Fury doesn't get as much of the gate as you think. Okay. And that's on account of the way the promotional structure set up in his contract. More on that. You want more on that? You got to DM me for that. But <clears throat> yes, he he will lose some money on the Wilder fight. But he potentially could go from one like he's risking 
three big-time fights, Wilder, Joshua, Joshua, for, you know, he's risking that if he fights Wilder by saying, I may only get one. I may have to go fight Daniel Dubois, which is not a very big fight if Wilder were to catch him. And, uh, but if he takes Wilder out of the, the, the equation, and Wilder is the ultimate wild card in, like, the, the sport of boxing, there's two basically guaranteed fights with Joshua, maybe even three. I, I would take that route. I would 100% take that route. And, like, look, if you say that to me, I'm going to say you sound smart. You sound like you know what you're talking about. You sound like somebody who's going to weigh the cost-benefit analysis, look at the risk and all that stuff, and you're going to say it may not make that much sense for Fury to fight uh, Wilder just because of the threat that Wilder's posing. Wilder is not exactly Dominic Brazil. So, sure. And, like, again, if I heard somebody say that, I'd say all right. And if Fury said that, I'd say all right. It kind of sucks. If you're Wilder, you're not happy about that. But I think it's a realistic explanation for it and why. And look, I don't like you tell me, do, do you think that Bob Arum kind of comes off as a little blindsided by the situation? Or do you think he's playing this like, you know, to babyface it, even though he knows that this might have been the plan all along? Well, I mean, I think he's I don't think he's intentionally making his guy look bad. I think he's trying to like babyface it as much as he can. But I think he's also kind of pissed off. Or at least, like, I, I, I do believe he's, like, blindsided by it because if you think about it, he signed Fury to fight in America, and the biggest fight in America is Wilder. And instead, what he's going to do is his plan, I mean, essentially, he, he's going to be fighting on ESPN Plus, probably, against Ajit Kabayel. Then if Great this... pronunciation there. Then <laughs> if this... Yeah, if this plan that he's put forward is true or like it comes to fruition he's gonna fight joshua in the uk that doesn't that is minuscule financially for uh stateside companies both espn who i believe is footing the brunt of his contract and top rank so it's like if you ask aram just he doesn't take a genius to say what would you prefer him to fight wilder again it's another huge fight and then maybe turn the AJ fight into a US fight or would you rather have him go back and take a homecoming fight in the UK and then fight a unification against AJ in the UK it's like of course you want you want him to stay here so i both the fact that like what he said combined with the simple logic of it i don't think Aram is behind this and that's why i think i i don't i'm very skeptical of MTK just in general I'm very skeptical of like the media blitz they put behind justifying this move um, with all of their social media and paid sponsored uh, social media stuff. But I don't know how much like they have funny money that maybe they're making this all work in a way that doesn't that wouldn't normally work. But I don't understand how you can turn down. He's guaranteed 60 at least uh, if I recall 60 percent of the rematch. And they both have huge guarantees. So, like, this fight could lose money. And Fox and ESPN, along with Top Rank and PBC, are going to pay these guys their money. So, like, he's risking 20... I'm just putting a number out there because I know their guarantees approximately for the first fight, or for the rematch, I guess, for the first big pay-per-view between the two networks. He's He's essentially throwing $25 million guaranteed minimum downside into the toilet by by doing what he's doing and so then my question is 
why does he have to fight this year? Is that like they keep putting that forward like he's gonna have a mental breakdown if he doesn't, which is like it's always been his excuse for stuff, and I don't I have a problem saying it that the guy's got problems, and also he uses that as a total crutch. Uh, for every bad thing he's ever done, look at when people try to ask him about some of the comments he makes, and he says he's not talking. Like, he sounds like Mark McGuire. I'm not here to talk about the past, uh, which is what you say when you have no answer for shitty things you've done. But um, I don't know what kind of funny money MTK is using to make up the difference because it doesn't make sense to me why you turned down 25 million dollars guaranteed to fight Wilder, a guy you just dominated. And yes, it's dangerous in the sense, but. To take this Caballel fight, which, I mean, even if I, they can't have crowds yet in the UK, even if I know that there's some, I, I think that the plan is probably to do a small crowd, but it's like a crowd of less than a thousand people. There's no way he's there's it doesn't make any sense financially as to why you would do that, and this idea that he's going to fight AJ in the first quarter of next year is like you can't that have fans happening. yet. Like this, you can't this is just have not fans happening. yet. Yeah, it's not, exactly. I don't They're think both it's fighting happen. in December, and AJ's in a tough fight. It's not happening. Well, all right, let's not go. Cooper Pulev sucks, but no, but Cooper Pulev is a world world level fighter. Yeah, he's a big guy. You need he's a, a few months guy. off. But but even even okay. So if that fight is happening in July or June or July, which I think would be the earliest, you could maybe do it. Even even if at, you can have 100% attendance at that point, it still doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't you fight Wilder in January, beat him, make $25 million, and then fight AJ in July? It doesn't, like, none of it makes any sense. Well, and so, there's only two explanations. And so, to me, well, to me, it's either, like, Fury doesn't want this fight, or, but I'm not big on the idea that he's, like, ducking Wilder or whatever, because, like, I don't know. It's, that, an, it's, it's kind a of calculated absurd. move. But I, th- I think it's a calculated move with some factors that we don't know about. The fact that he needs to fight this year is, like, absurd. That, that's, like, an excuse that doesn't pass the smell test for one second mm-hmm. unless there's yep. ulterior motives. And where is the money being made up here? Because I don't believe that he's just, like, giving up this money. I think that there it's being made up somewhere. And so where is that coming from? So yeah, I, I don't know. There's there is some factors here that are hidden from from the public eye, and I don't. I think I've made enough insinuations as to what I think might be happening, but it doesn't make sense purely from a boxing business point of view. Even if you're saying that he's mitigating risk, he's mitigating risk for what? For a Joshua fight that could be happening long into the future and can't make the amount of money that he would make in a Wilder fight unless it's even longer in the future because they need to have the same type sort of live gate. Well, um, and the, so, yes, obviously the, the just, risk just, of Wilder. Just before, just before I let you go, the contract for the third fight was written in a pre-pandemic world. The guarantees for those guys made by the networks and by the promotional entities were in a pre-pandemic world. So he's turning down pre-pandemic 60% of a huge heavyweight title pay-per-view guarantee between the two biggest sports channels in the United States all that shit was guaranteed so the fact that he's just pissing that off it, it doesn't pass a certain sort of smell test for me but uh yeah sorry to interrupt you, you no I think you, you said it well and I think we both agree that yes I, I think I 100% think the, the threat Wilder poses 
even if you think you're going to win all 12 rounds, just knowing that everything could come crashing down with one shot, which I don't think is going to be the case if he fights a Jeet Caballel or anybody else on that level, um, I think it makes a lot of sense that you factor that in with what's on the table. And I think there are things on the table that we're not aware of. And you alluded to it with the MTK connection. Um, we know that they've, they're based in Saudi Arabia and that's a whole shit show on its own. I think it's possible that there's more here that we don't know about. And maybe December 5th is a convenient sort of, uh, it's just convenient for them. I don't know. So, Anyway, um, let's move on. We'll talk now about this Canelo situation. So Canelo, as you know, we'll just kind of recap a little bit. Canelo sued Golden Boy, and we'll call him by their legal name, does own. Sued him. Sued them, everyone and their mother that's involved with them. And it was going to be a federal court case. And what they're suing them for is that they breached their contract. And very simply, just to put it in the, the lamest type of words possible, or layman's terms, but I said lame, uh, is that Canelo wants his money. Canelo wants the guaranteed minimum on his contract that says 34 or whatever million. And they have been coming to Canelo as he's been trying to get these fights signed since the pandemic began. And they've come to him and they said, how about Hoff? And Canelo says, pay me. And they say no. So now they're in court. And then the court saw Canelo's lawsuit. They tossed it out. And they said, you guys made a mistake here. Refile it. Establish these grounds so that this is where, like, you know, you want a federal case where you need to meet the federal requirements and you have not done that. So then Canelo's team says, well, 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 if we can't make it in federal court, we're not going to reshape this. We're just going to file it in state court. They amended it a little. And remember... They, prior to refiling it in the state court, they had like 30 days. I, I see you liked my little message. I just sent Rollins a message saying that I did pick Navarrete. Um, but I didn't remember saying that, so don't give me any credit. Uh, so they said, you got 30 days, but in the meantime, you guys should just try to work it out. Go get a mediator. Come together. See if you can work that contract out. That's a lot of money. So Canelo, Golden Boy, they all got together with the mediator. Dazone got together with the mediator. They come in and they, they negotiate. We got a little rumor. It was a rumor, like 20 million plus a percentage of subs after a certain number. I think that's what it was. And uh, Canelo said, no, we're refiling. So they refiled in the state court. They changed it a little bit. They, they, they have a little more insight into the agreements. And now the ball was in the court of Golden Boy, who's being sued, and Dazone, who's being sued. And do you know what? Uh, who fired back first? Guess. Was it Golden Boy or DeZone? Tell me. DeZone. Yeah. Because you can kind of get that Golden Boy is not the guy in class that, you know, did his homework as soon as he got home. Um, so they got their lawyers together and they, they put together a beautiful counter. Beautiful counter. They said, we need this back in federal court. So like Canelo's team, they initially wanted it in federal court and... The court said, no, go to, you know, do something, file it somewhere else or fix this. They chose not to fix it. They filed it in state. The zone comes back and says, no, 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 no. Let's take it back to federal. Now, let me tell you why. The reason why they want it in federal court is because there's, uh, there's a clause or not a clause. There's precedence for um, contracts like Canelo's got that's over a certain amount of money 
and has an arbitration clause and is between parties who are not citizens of the United States, which Canelo was not. And DAZN is a UK-based company. So because of those factors, there's precedence that to sort that out, you do it through arbitration. And DAZN is trusting that the arbitration agreement in that contract is so good that they will get a ruling in their favor. Now, there's a couple of problems here. One, Canelo doesn't actually have a contract with them. The contract with the arbitration clause is actually between Golden Boy and not Canelo. It's between Golden Boy and DAZN, okay? Canelo's contract is only with Golden Boy. Now, notice Golden Boy, the connecting link here. They're not saying a peep. So, that's where we're at. They're going to try to get this in federal court where they can hopefully go to arbitration for, uh, you know, on their end. That's what they're hoping for. Canelo initially wanted in federal court. Potentially, they have a, some something up their sleeve and they're going to hit back and it won't go to arbitration. I don't know. But that leads us to here. So now, any questions on my explanation of the situation as it stands? Well, I was just going to say that like the reason that it got booted from federal court in the first place was they didn't establish jurisdiction for some of the members of the LLCs is what I understand. And essentially in order to kick it back to federal court, what they did was they, they got disowned to supply that information themselves um, because they would have, they preferred it to be in federal court. So I'm not a lawyer. Like I said, um, I don't really totally get all of the, I get the basics of like lawsuits and stuff, but I don't get necessarily like each move along the way. I'm, I don't necessarily give myself enough credit to understand in real time why people are doing what they're doing. But it seems to me like a lot of people who have commented on it. Think that the is on solid footing if they get it to federal court. But those are also the same people who for the most part, um, thought it was a big L on Canelo's team's part when their lawsuit got got rejected from federal court because oh, they didn't they didn't establish these um, jurisdictions for certain parties of the people that they were suing in various LLCs and other um, like parties. And so yeah, I, I won't get into the nitty-gritty because honestly like I, I would just be a person talking out of their ass anyone who, is more educated on these subjects would just no longer be interested in listening. But it appears to me that it may have been a strategy of Canelo's team all along to take this course of action because I don't think that some, some of the information that they did not have when they initially took it to federal court, going to state court and then having to zone be the ones to request it to go back to federal court they were provided with that information about the the parties involved in this action. And so I think when you look at it in a totality, you might, the way it strikes me is that there might be something else that Canelo's team is interested in pursuing. And it might not be as straightforward as some people um, I've seen make it out to be because what it seems like is Canelo's team couldn't get where they wanted to go at first. So they made a couple moves in order to perhaps get there. And so 
I'm just letting it play out because I, I Fred would be a better person to have on because I mean he's a little bit more interested in this and also he's read a lot more specifically about all of this. Um, but what it seems to me, in my opinion on it, is um, I'm going to let things play out a little bit further and I definitely don't buy into the idea that it was like this this silver bullet that DAZN's legal team came up with because essentially all they did was revert back three weeks to get to give Canelo's team what they wanted and so how it goes in federal court like I have no clue I don't not a lawyer but I think that that's probably the playing field that both parties were interested in going to now and so now it's just kind of a matter of who's got more aces up their sleeve I, I don't know I mean You'd have to, like, in order to, because, look, there's, every time that there's lawsuits, like, nobody's really looking at things. It's still viewed through the same lens that they give all their trash takes about things. And clearly, there's the the side of Canelo, and then there's the other side. And, you know, it's the same thing when Golden Boy was suing PBC, the takes were ridiculous and everyone thought that Golden Boy's case was just like super airtight and it turned out that Golden Boy couldn't even really sue for what they were suing. And furthermore, the case that they were trying to make, like every like it backfired. And I don't and, and I, I I find it hard to believe that these lawyers would mess up like twice. Cause you have to make the assumption that if Canelo's lawyers are like really in a bad spot is A, they never wanted it in federal court to begin with, and B, now that it's back in federal court, they overlooked the fact that they may have to go to arbitration because there's precedence in situations like this where they do go to arbitration. You'd have to take those two things into consideration, and I don't believe that that's the case. I don't think that they're that dumb. I think that when it comes to, and you know, I've looked into these lawyers, they seem to be very, very high up, sort of, they're, they, they've dealt with lots of big type, big types of cases and they're playing chess and they've now positioned themselves where they made they forced a move that would benefit them and it may not look that way but you know by not establishing the jurisdictional diversity which is what it was which basically means you got to know where everyone's from you got to establish where everyone's from and they didn't do that and so they didn't do it. They didn't know where those people were from. And rather than going and figuring it out, they let the other side do it. And they did it for them, which I'd have to believe that this is all being done on purpose. Now, it's possible that his lawyers are just actually completely incompetent. That's totally possible, but I don't think so. So there's just too much money at stake here because if like they get the win that they expect, that's $280 million is getting paid out plus legal fees. So I imagine that that is not the case. The, the big question is, well, okay, well, when's Canelo going to fight again? And the answer is, who knows? Who knows? This could, this could take a long time. He could be out of the ring for a year. And the big, you know, I think he's ready to do it. I mean, what do you think? Do you think he's what ready to stand at or s- sit out for a year? Well, he's already sat out for 11 months, so uh, it's worth knowing He's that. not Tyson Fury. He uh, doesn't need to fight seven weeks. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I, I guess I don't have a whole lot to say on this because, um, like, like I've already said, I think, I think both parties know what they're doing. They're both, I mean, these are both high-priced 
lawyers. And it seems to me like both parties are moving strategically. And so it's just a matter of how whatever court this ends up in sees it, which is very like subjective a lot of times. I mean, I'm not uh, super involved in this stuff, but I do know it's not like it's not a math equation. It's more of persuasive essays sort of thing. Um, but the other thing I will say is I know that Canelo's goal is not to wait forever. One of the specific parts of each of his legal filings has been, he wants there to be like an injunction that allows him to fight outside of the deals that he's currently in both promotionally and broadcast wise. And so if, if for a second we take the idea that Canelo's team is the one that's outmaneuvering um, Golden Boy here, or at least ha- is on the sh- more solid footing. Um, I think Canelo's ideal scenario is getting free from this promotional deal and making independent, uh, make an independent fight with um, whoever it is, David Benavidez, um, probably not GGG, but. Um, even Callum Smith, I mean, he could still do that fight uh, in a, on an independent deal and, and make a deal with a pay-per-view distributor and stuff. So I think that's what he wants to do. Whether that means that if that doesn't happen and he has to sit out, I think that's possible. I don't think that's what Canelo wants to do, but I think his goal here is to not have to, and I'm not a... I'm not an experienced enough legal mind to know whether that's possible or not. So what I will say is I don't think that Canelo is the type of person that like will sit out two years, two and a half years. And so the fact that he's already sat out 11 months is kind of due to the pandemic. So that kind of is like a little bit of an outlier. But um, if there's not like a resolution by this time next year or something, I don't know. I have, I have a hard time seeing that just with Canelo being who he is, but a lot of it comes down to how the legal situation unfolds, which, as I've said on many occasions, I don't have a great feel for. And that's more or less, I mean, all I got to say on it. I don't know. You can uh, take it from here. No, I mean, there's really not much else to say. We don't know. I, I, once this goes to court and things start getting revealed. Oh, I guess the only the last thing to say is that the contract that they have with Golden Boy, they are really trying to keep it like secret and they don't want anybody to know what's in that contract. So that thing must be. You know, that is the smoking gun there. And again, I, I wonder why Golden Boy is staying quiet in all of this. I, I don't know if they're trying to play both sides here or they've clearly taken a side. I, I don't know, understand why they're not doing anything about this. Because Just to clarify, uh, you pronouns, pal, uh, you the contract that wants to, that DAZN wants to keep secret is the contract DAZN has with Golden Boy because that is the only contract that's relevant in this scenario is what you're talking about, right? Yep. Pronouns, pal. Goddamn. All right. (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on. This is the reason why you're here. All right. That is to talk about Vasily Lomachenko versus Teofimo Lopez. They will fight this Saturday night on ESPN. On a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you? Uh, A 9. Really? 9 and a half. Really? 9 and... 9 and... What's a 10? Cowboy Carl versus Clay Collard? Yeah, there you go. That's that's it. No, I mean something something about this like it, it's a fantastic fight, and I'm I'm extremely excited for it. So if you're gonna say it's not a ten, I don't, it doesn't have like 
I'm not really that sold on like their beef or anything. And like this whole year has been weird. So I'm not really like on a 10 for like any sporting event really at this point. Um, but as far as like just a pure bot, like a boxing purist fight to look forward to, there's really no better combination of like high stakes along with a clash of styles and like the fact that it's young versus old or at least young versus uh, young up and comer un- unproven or much less proven versus the veteran, uh, bigger man versus smaller man. Um, it has all of the, the ingredients that like gets you really excited for, for a fight. Fair. I, I'm not at an eight. I'm like at a seven. Now I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've been at a 10 in a long, 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 long time. So it's similar, you know, nine. I, what would have this at a nine for me is if I thought uh, Teofimo was as skilled as Lomachenko, like the, my, not that I'm not excited because I'm still still at an eight. I like the juxtaposition of their of who they are as fighters. But the thing um, that isn't you know taking this over the top for me is like I think Lomachenko's really good at one thing, and he's great at a lot of other things. Tiafimo's good at one thing, and I don't know how good he is at anything else. And that does add to the intrigue of the fight because it's like okay, well, what does Tiafimo do if he can't hurt Lomachenko? If he can't land that fight-changing uh, shot, does he have enough skill to outbox Lomachenko and outmaneuver this guy who, thus far in his career, outside of Orlando Salido, nobody's ever been able to win more than a few rounds off of him. I mean, has anybody even won five rounds off of Lomachenko since he fought um, Orlando Salido? I mean, I think I think on one of the cards uh, in the Linares fight, he had won... Uh, it got stopped in the eleventh. Yeah, I think it was the eleventh. Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think it was five to five, maybe on on one card, maybe maybe six to four on one and six four to six on the other. But regardless, I mean, most people thought Lomachenko was pulling ahead in that fight, if not already ahead. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there, there haven't been very many rounds that he's certainly not rounds he's lost cleanly. And there's been rounds where he can maybe give it either way, and then he picks it up and starts laying it on people but i i think there's potential in this fight like look let's for sure this isn't going to be zapata branchik let's just get that out of the way I, you know that's just not the way lomachenko's neither guy's built that way um lopez is not built to hurt somebody but not really really hurt him and lomachenko's not the guy that's gonna you know if he's gonna land a shot it's literally the, sh- the, the last shot that you saw coming and you're probably gonna be real messed up when you get up from it and so I think that there's a, a lot of potential that Lomachenko could turn this into a boxing match and Lopez can't keep up. Like, I know that Teofimo's changed his, his camp a, or a little bit and who's training him and, and they're working on different things. But, like, we're talking about a guy who's going to work on his fundamentals more and, and figure out how to leverage his power shots a little more. Okay, fine. Versus a guy that has literally every single trick in the book that we've ever seen. Now, defensively, not so much, but offensively, like, Lomachenko has everything. And, you know, this fight is predicated on whether or not Teofimo could land that power shot. And it's going to be tense the whole 12 rounds because at some point, you're gonna, you, you have to expect that it's coming. And, you, and that is the 
for me, that is the most uh, exciting uh, part about this matchup is what happens if and when Teofimo Lopez lands his right hand. What does Lomachenko do? Lomachenko is a small lightweight. We saw we saw him get put down, albeit it was a little bit on the the, the balance side. But you know, I don't want to say that because Lomachenko's no, haters are that, not going to be happy with me saying that. They they that, they wanted to be acknowledged as a full knockdown. I got it, but um, you know, Teofimo that Lopez. That was a full. Are we, are we talking about Linares, man? Like that. That was a full knockdown. It didn't it didn't hurt him. Excuse that me. Was, that was a full knockdown. Excuse me. I'm just I I look. I don't know where I fit, fit, feel about that. Um, Why? He hit him. He 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 balances clean, clean of, into a straight right hand. Look, I I don't have a problem with you saying that. I'm just trying to. Put it, he can put I'm it trying to both butt. sides it. Yeah, put it on his butt. It wasn't like it wasn't like he tripped over something. Well, he's a little off balance. He squared completely up, but that's also yeah, he part squared of, up. Of, yeah, he squared up. That's how people got sent to hell. Jesus. But I, I'm just trying to both sides it, man. I, Lomachenko's got haters, and he's got people who really, really like the guy. And I want to make sure that nobody's offended by what I'm saying here. I'm on the Lomachenko appreciator side. And oh, I the, still the, like the appreciator. I, okay. Do you know? You know me. I don't like Lomachenko stands. I don't like people that like geek out about how he can he can do Sudoku while holding his breath underwater or whatever. But I mean, he's a brilliant fighter. I appreciate the fighter a lot more than most people probably. I like a lot more than a lot, most people would think, given our proclivities to be labeled as pro PBC or whatever. Well, I mean, we are just as polarizing as Lomachenko is. But um, I mean, here's something that I wonder about is first Lomachenko wanted a tune up. You remember this? He wanted a tune-up. They didn't want to go straight into the fight with Tiafimo. Tiafimo's the 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 push for Tiafimo to fight Lomachenko is completely pushed by his dad and not by his actual management team. Pandemic happens. A lot of time passes. Do you think that what for whatever reason Lomachenko might have wanted a, a tune-up fight? That in fact this was the better route for him to get all this time to rest, recover, heal, going into this fight. Well, I think, no, I, I disagree with that. Um, I think... What part do you disagree with? I don't say anything that you disagree well, with. Well, that Lomachenko would prefer or that would benefit, uh, his primary benefit, would be the primary benefactor of having a longer layoff okay, uh, okay. with, like, well, no rest. Why do you think that? I understand, I understand why you would say that. I mean, he's been sure. going 100 miles an hour since he was, whatever, like... 15 or whatever when he started doing international amateur tournaments or whatever. But I think what happened with his shoulder um, a couple fights ago, he really did see, I don't, I don't, I'm hesitant on whether how, how big of a deal physically it was, but it did seem mentally um, to him to have, uh, he had a little bit of a mental block um, getting over whatever happened to his right shoulder and throwing uh throwing hooks with his lead hand and i think if if there was a reason that he wanted to tune up it's because he knows that carla sucks and that fight was pointless and so maybe he wanted to get uh another fight under his belt to where he could fully utilize all of his skills as he knows how 
physically, like having them all available, which for the first couple fights in his lightweight run, his his shoulder wasn't apparently at 100%. And so I think um, in his mind, he probably would have preferred to have the ability to go out there and do a full test run and work out all of um, his body parts and make sure everything's firing on all cylinders, as opposed to having to just rely on the fact that they'll be there. Because I think something about coming back from injuries is you have to physically do it in order to convince your mind that you can do it. It's not just enough to be fully physically healed. And so I don't, I mean, I understand the the view that he's, he's put so much taxation on his body uh, competing at tournaments for such a long time or at in competition for such a long time consistently that he might benefit from it. But I think he's the type of person and it's not like he's old, old. I think he's 32 um, to where he needs that sort of break. I think, I think he would probably benefit from being in the flow, knowing all of, all of what he visualizes in his head, he's fully capable of physically performing. Yeah, I, that's a good point. You know, I, said another way, the um, the mental recovery of having an injury is, and, and I've listened to orthopedic surgeons talk about this with athletes, where it's like, yeah, you can break your ankle, that's fine, but the recovery is actually the toughest mentally to like, you know, put the same pressure on it and to make the same cut you were making before. And I can see why you'd say that about, um, you know, him needing that tune-up fight after his injury to make sure that he can still throw with the same um, the same speed, the same power as he was before, which he may not necessarily do in sparring. And so, um, yeah, I, sure. I, th- I think, I still think, though, all this time to recover was good for him because the guy's been fighting so much. And injury aside, I, I think there's just so much wear and tear that the guys put on his body that he may not have even known that wasn't even major injuries, just little minor aches and things that he probably lived with for so long, not realizing that that wasn't normal. And we could have, you know, a very invigorated Lomachenko that we haven't quite seen in a long time. And uh, the other thing coming into this fight is like, how big of a factor do you think the size is going to be? Because Lomachenko is, um, first of all, he's a very weird-shaped guy. I think that's the best way to put it. He's got like this really long torso, um, kind of short legs. His arms are all right. And, um, you know, Teofimo is going to come in, going to have a few inches of height over him. He's going to have a few inches of reach over him. Do you think that that's going to play a bigger factor? And, you know, especially considering that, like, you know, Ruben Villa and Emmanuel Navarrete, which we just saw this weekend, was a perfect example of a guy who had a few inches and he used every single one of those inches um, to, I mean, to win that fight and to really take that fight out of, really prove everybody wrong about how that fight was going to play out. Well, first, let me just say that I'm flattered that... uh... The conversation came to me when it came about uh, utilizing the extra few inches. <laughs> we don't call you the rated R superstar for nothing. <laughs> um, but but I think now he's is, flattered. I, I I felt him flush. <laughs> but uh, I don't think Teofimo uses his size in a way that is 
as problematic as some other guys who are big lightweights um, or who could be big the lightweights. Context of this conversation is. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you you know you brought it you brought it in with the, uh, the extra few inches and bringing in I, the I man. I didn't expect we were gonna go there, but okay, we're doing it. I mean, the innuendo was strong. I mean, but uh, I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs> but but point being is like I don't think I don't think Teofimo is the type of person to utilize his physical size in a way to hamper Lomachenko in the way that, I mean, for example, Salido did. Obviously, that's a different Lomachenko. Um, he's got a lot more ways of dealing with that sort of thing now. But also, he's facing considerably larger men. I mean, there are people at lightweight who are considerably larger than Lomachenko. And Teofimo is one of them. But at his heart, Teofimo is a counterpuncher. He's a he wants to land a big counter and fuck you up, and so I don't like the I don't I don't see the size difference necessarily being as important as you might think. I think Lomachenko is used to using his movement and angles and speed to get inside the range of guys who are lankier. I think he's been doing that his whole career, and so when it comes to the difference in like arm arms and reach, I think he's perfectly comfortable navigating that. And then when it comes to the natural size, I think it would only be a large factor if it was going to be someone that was going to apply physical pressure to Lomachenko. And the thing that you mentioned earlier about Tiafimo is we've only really seen him against war, not even elite world level period competition. Like once you saw world one and, world level fighter, and it and it lasted for like uh, three hundred and twenty seconds or something. Uh, that's rounds. horrible is, math. Is that I don't but, even know. Yeah, all right. I just introduced the <laughs> I introduced math into this podcast, but yeah, I mean, he essentially knocked out Comey. Who Comey is a good fighter for sure, but he's been beaten by decent fighters, not great fighters. And the guy he beat to win that title is an absolute joke show like the thing that annoys me about the comparison between haney and teofimo and lomachenko and haney in general is the guy haney beat to win the interim title that was eventually upgraded to the full title the wbc is just as big of a jobber as the guy who comey beat the difference is is that teofimo beat comey and haney hasn't beat anyone on comey's level but like somehow Comey holding a title has become like this sensational, unbelievable win when it's like, okay, what he did was very impressive for sure to knock a guy out who's proven to be at minimum like top 15 in the world. But just beating him really doesn't say that much. And particularly like just beating him by nailing him with one punch and then the fight being over kind of it robs you of the ability to show the other assets of your game that exist at a high level, exist at a world level, that combined with the fact that I thought he really struggled in the Nakatani fight, and he showed, in a lot of cases, I thought his lack of multidimensionalism, and I know that he's talked about having poor preparation for that fight and other things, but I don't know how TFMO is going to react. So What I think I know about him is that he's a counterpuncher who wants to land a big punch. Do I think that 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 bodes well to beating Lomachenko? 
no, not unless he lands the one punch that is sent from the gods, according to AJ. But do I think that's going to happen? No. And so the wild card is if there's a version of Tiafimo that bullies Lomachenko, uses his physicality and punching power. So it's not lending the one perfect shot that's like picturesque, boom, sit down. But it's tiring out Lomachenko and putting work into the body, maybe getting in the clinch, maybe using a forearm, and then boom, coming across him with a, with a powerful right hand to the point where in the later stages of the fight, maybe there is that one big shot that really does it in picturesque fashion. That's the sort of thing that if, if Teofimo has these other facets to his game that we haven't seen yet, it, we could be in for like a real, real monumental sort of fight where I see it based on the actual evidence, what I've seen both guys do. What I see is, Lomachenko, one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world, putting all of his skills together and beating a really talented but not as multi-dimensional fighter in Tiafimo. So, I mean, this points to what I said to start the conversation is I think this could I, I think so I, I think anything short like I'm trying to think of like, well, what are the um <clears throat> what are the outcomes which people would be happy with? And obviously, number one, I think, is the Tiafimo does a Tiafimo and gets this really cool knockout. I think for sure that would be a, a, an acceptable outcome. And I don't know that any other outcome is really that acceptable. I mean, maybe Lomachenko knocks him out. I don't know. Maybe, all right? And I think if we see that, you know, Tiafimo, for all of his power and all of his, you know, skills and stuff like that, if he just looks like a guy who's like, oh yeah, he's he wasn't ready for this fight. If that becomes what this this fight is, I think people are going to be a little upset about that and feel like, uh, yeah, we got hyped up about this fight and like technically, um, it was just another example where we kind of got fooled into thinking a guy was ready for a fight that he wasn't. And the good thing is, like, you know, that doesn't mean that Tiafimo's not good. It just means, like, hey, this isn't his time yet, you know. Um, it wasn't Lomachenko's time when he fought Salido. And so that is one of the things. Now, one thing you brought up, which I actually think it goes the other way, is I'm really curious to see, and, and it reminds me a lot of the Tank and Santa Cruz fight, because in that fight, we know we have one guy that can go 12 rounds. He can go 12 rounds throwing 100 punches. Um, Lomachenko, I, I don't necessarily think it's the exact same thing. Like, I don't think he's going to go 12 rounds throwing 100 punches. He's going to throw a lot of punches, not 100, but he's going to throw a lot. And what Lomachenko does bring to the table, though, is he fights at a ridiculously high pace that's just as active as Leo Santa Cruz, who throws a ton of punches. Um, Lomachenko is going to move around. He's going to... During the clinches, he's going to refuse to let let those last. Like, he's not going to... You, you know the way he, he approaches clinches is he immediately tries to get out and keep throwing punches. <clears throat> and I wonder for a guy like Tiafima who struggles with asthma and all that stuff, what happens if he can't, like, he can't fight at this pace? That's my biggest concern in this fight, you know, amongst everything. You know, we could... Yes, what happens when 
Tiafimo connects with a big power shot, can Lomachenko withstand the power of a good punching lightweight? But more so than that is if Lomachenko is able to dictate the pace of this fight, is Tiafimo going to have enough gas for it? Because power punchers tend to, you know, not be, not focus on stamina. And Lomachenko fights at a ridiculous pace. And I think a lot of the guys who he's made quit over the course of his career have quit because they don't want to fight at that pace. Even if um, they're not, you know, Rigondeau wasn't getting blown out. There weren't even that many super clean punches where Rigondeau appeared hurt or anything like that. But I think just fighting at that pace was just way too mentally taxing for him to want to continue to be in that fight. And I think it's similar to the Tank and Santa Cruz fight because Santa Cruz has said as much. He's like, you know, we know he punches hard. Sure, we're going to avoid that and just see how he responds to, you know, the pressure and activity. Boiling down what he said, I'm sure he said it in a much more boring way. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's certainly like a large factor in it. Um, And to a certain degree, I I don't necessarily worry about Tiafimo gassing, at least not from throwing too many punches. What I think could happen is his output could be lessened to the point that the fight isn't necessarily very competitive. Um, I mean, I, I, what we're doing is gaming out a lot of different scenarios to which a really a, a fight between two very skilled and athletic guys. And we're going to both be wrong. And Lomachenko one punches him in the first round. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're we're kind of just gaming out a bunch of different scenarios. Sure. So I don't I don't mean to say that the fight won't be competitive, but I think if the pace is a problem for him, there's I could see a scenario which he just doesn't throw enough punches. And maybe, maybe later in the fight, maybe he could be vulnerable to like a like a, a vicious body attack where he is he's cardiovascularly so worn out that he's not bracing at the right moment and he gets hit with body punch. That the he's old not, Jason Rosario. <laughs> yeah. Well, even even uh, Linares, the way he got hit with that body punch, it was more so about. He was so locked into what was going on and like this high pace chess match with the hands. And then he gets hit with a body shot. And it's like the one, if you're not, if your core isn't anticipating that you can get hit and just be debilitated. And so I think a, a scenario like that, but and I, I mean, like, like the thing with Tiafimo is there's so little tape on him being in competitive rounds. And so the way if I just had to, guess that he would react to being overwhelmed by pace and when it comes to pace it's not just punches but it's the amount of feints no, the amount of, the amount of mo- the amount of movement uh footwork wise the amount of the mental uh, pressure yeah the mental pressure that's coming i could see that depressing his volume to a point where he basically can't win rounds because what i what i think his focus will be is there's going to be a few scenarios in which he thinks he can he can land a big right hand, and I think that that's most I think that that will be most of what he's focused on doing because from what I've seen in his fights, with the exception of the Nakatani fight where he kind of had to grind out a fight that he didn't that didn't that didn't unfold as he wanted it to, for the most part, every other fight he's been in that I've seen, which is probably like his last six fights has unfolded how he wanted to and therefore the shots that he 
was interested in setting up were effective and he was able to set them up and that's why he ended up winning. So if he goes into this fight with the idea that he has a few shots that he's interested in setting up and then the pace of the fight is totally taken out of his hands, I could see that being just kind of like a, a mentally freezing sort of scenario for him. And rather than like wearing himself out from swinging and missing, it could just lead him to kind of keep his hands where they are and, and not have the confidence to throw the punches that he would need to in order to maybe change something about the fight. Yeah. I, I think it's just so, you know, Manny Pacquiao, yes, he was a, a big puncher, but I think the, the pace that he fought at, and I mean, even still to this day, he fights at a ridiculously high pace. And, you know, I, I'm, I feel like I'm the one who's actually created this because I don't ever know anybody else who talks about this other than me and the people who I talk to who, you know, I guess you hear it from me or something. But like, it, it's just so important to me to watch the pace at which guys fight at. It, it's so critical because you have guys who throw a lot of punches, but they're just not as effective as a guy like Lomachenko. And Manny Pacquiao also, like, dude's always moving. He's always engaging his, his opponent. And it's not just throwing punches, but it's forcing them to to think. It's forcing them to to um, you know have to do something, whether that be taking taking a step back or um, you know putting their hands up or moving their head, or or just throwing a punch when they don't want to throw punches. And that's what Lomachenko does to guys. And so I'm really curious to see how how that's going to play out in this fight because this is a problem that there's a world level pace. Okay, Jamel Charlo fights at a world level pace. He's just like he, he doesn't throw a ton of punches in his fights, but he fights at a world level pace. And that's, he actually th- he actually throws very low for compared to the division average. But he right, and but it, that doesn't. I'm, make, mean, I'm helping make your point. Right. Well, no, I, I I get that, but that doesn't mean though that Jamel Charlo in his fights, like his opponents, like like you know, they're not they're like not gassed or anything like that you saw jason rosario like he had... you can even you can even look back at us i apologize to keep interrupting you but you can even look back at uh, what tony harrison has said which is that he wasn't able to stay mentally locked in for all 12 rounds of that fight and that's why he ended up getting knocked out was because he wasn't able to do that which is it would lock in and maintain that pace for 12 rounds yeah and you know We've seen time and time again guys who uh, are, you know, they're all right. They're they're decent little fighters on their way up. They move up. They fight a world-level fighter, and they just can't keep up. And I think Nicholas Walters is the perfect example of everyone. He had everyone fooled. He had people thinking that this guy was some elite fighter, which, you know, I had said before that, you know, I watched Nicholas Walters before he had fought on HBO. He was fighting on top-ranked undercards. And I just never thought that he really looked very good. And you see him get in the ring with Lomachenko and like skill, like, you know, the skill gap was just immense. And he just didn't, he had no interest in in the fight. Quit, gave up, world champion and just said, or actually, I don't think he was a world champion at the time. Um, But he just gave up on the fight. I mean, he gave up on his boxing career for like four (laughs) years, bro. (laughs) I think there might have been something else going on there too. But uh, it's it's a fair point. I mean, even even to the point that like someone like Adrian Broner, it's like when when Adrian Broner was in control of the pace of the fights as he came on the way up, 
he always he always was in control and he always looked like a world like a future pound for pound fighter and as soon as he fought guys that were able and willing to take the pace of the fight away from him he's essentially become a 500 fighter and it's not that he's still is ta- not still not talented but there is something about both i mean it's mental and physical and i think in large part he he lacks some mental preparation for it but you have to be prepared to enter a fight that is going to take place at a certain at a certain pace and if you're not willing to meet that if you're if you want to i mean for a large portion of the last part of his career i mean broner has essentially said if if i can't win at this pace then i'm not going to win and that's just yeah well that's just and that's been the course and and it's and and some people like overly criticize him for it broner actually does throw punches like when he he gets the pace right if you can just outpace him like like pacquiao just outpaced him and he never could catch up to that Whereas when he gets in the ring with people who he can eventually catch up with, that's when he has fights where he's still able to win. And so not to, not to, well, yeah. And it's not to say, but I, but Walters and Broner are two interesting examples of guys who both the weight classes as they moved up the weight classes and, and as, I mean, it coincides with that guys who for the weight and for the power that they punch with are more skilled those guys got to a degree exposed. And so like we know so little about Tiafimo is Tiafimo could be a legit pound for pound guy. He could be like legit have um that sort of athleticism that he could he can I mean I guess the only person that's coming to mind is like Roy Jones, but not to compare him to Roy Jones, but to have someone that is at, so so athletically dynamic at the weight that they can make that they can hurt guys and also uh, not necessarily have to like just cute box, but can just line up shots and boom, make it happen. Boom lights out. He could be that guy or he could be some other version of this guy who has a lot of power at lightweight, who's a young guy making lightweight, who's not going to make lightweight his whole career. And then like, let's be real. Tiafimo could walk into the ring uh, with, Danny Garcia and he's the bigger man. He could walk into the ring with like your Dennis Ugas and he's the same size as him, if not bigger. I don't think he's bigger than those guys, but he'd be, he could be as big. He's not bigger than Danny Garcia. Well, all right, but uh, maybe I didn't pick the greatest examples, but point being Sean Porter. Yeah, there you go. You can listener pick in whatever example you want, but point being is like, he's a naturally big guy. So at some point he's going to have to fight guys that are as big naturally as him. And he's going to have to outskill them. And so who knows if when he gets to that point, he's going to be able to do that. And who knows if maybe he has the power for that size that he's still going to be knocking guys out. It's totally possible. But the question is, is at this point in his career, when he's still making the weight that he's making, is someone who's kind of at the opposite end of that scale, which is Lomachenko, who's gone up further than he he probably ever thought he would in weight, and also is at the point in his career where he knows exactly where he maximizes his skill. He's he's at the physical and mental prime of his career. It's kind of like the clash there. And depending on who wins, if Lomachenko wins, then a lot of the leg like a lot of the legacy that goes from this fight depends on who Tiafimo becomes 
as he moves on his career. Because if he moves up to 140 and he's just another guy at 140, maybe maybe he loses to, I don't know, whoever. Jose, Jose Ramirez, uh, British program, whoever. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, he knocked out some guys, but it was the power that he was uh, that he had at this weight that he was making. Then it becomes not as monumental of a fight as it seems like this week. But let's say Lomachenko wins, and and Tiafimo does become a guy who wins a title at 140 and wins a title at 147. Then it becomes like a, a Mayweather Canelo situation. Or let's say Tiafimo wins, and then he goes and keeps improving on himself on the weight classes like there are a lot of ways that it can play out but almost all of the uncertainty lies with what's ahead for Tiafimo because he's the guy who's coming in with he's a shooting star but we don't really know 100% where he's going to end up okay some anecdotal sort of stuff um when I was at Wilder Fury 2 I was hanging out in the bar um, like, yeah, I guess it's a bar, uh, after the fight and who walks by, but Tiafima Lopez. And, um, for the, the punching power that we know he possesses and the size disparity between him and the other lightweights, or at least the believe, uh, discrepancy bet- between them. Um, I gotta say, I was pretty unimpressed by him. He didn't look big. He looks, um, he looks, he really just looked like an ordinary guy. You know, an ordinary skinny guy walking by, didn't look tremendously athletic or anything like that. And he just kind of looked ordinary, you know? You see certain fighters walk by and it's like, wow, that guy's like, Abner Mares is a guy that when you, Abner Mares is kind of built like a, a super bantamweight Sean Porter. He's not very tall, but. He's like got this big upper body. Canelo um, has the big upper body. Tiafimo don't have that. And so that might be a testament to like this guy's got some really scary power uh, despite not really appearing that that way on the outside. So I don't know. So we should probably talk about who's going to win this fight. So who do you got? Well, if you are made it all the way to this point in the podcast, you probably go to hell. Figured it out. Goodbye. We're done. <laughs> You've probably figured out that my pick is Lomachenko by decision. Um, I think in order, the most likely outcomes are Lomachenko by decision, Lomachenko by stoppage, Lopez by stoppage, and Lopez by decision. Um, I think I'm, I'm very confident in Lomachenko winning this fight and dominating the action as it persists. I think it's possible if he stops him, it would be with a body shot and I could see a scenario where the whirling dervish pressure that comes with a late round Lomachenko when he kind of sees the finish line and starts to really uh, amp up his pressure. I could see that leading to um, a body shot knockout, but more than likely I I see uh, him winning a decision. Um, Are you done? Well, I'll go. I'll say that. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, I was thinking. Oh, okay, He's, this guy's thinking right here. It's the longest prediction ever. For those of you at home keep uh, struggling to keep keep up, he said Lomachenko decision. But go on. What, what else are you going to say? Yeah, I mean, Lomachenko by decision, man. All that. 
for you to just go back with Lomachenko decision. Let, let me let me tell you what my heart says, okay? Now, you know that I don't really give too many public... Uh, I, I don't do it on the podcast, at least. I don't give predictions. I think predictions in general are not conducive to enjoyment in the fight, at least from an objective standpoint. I think when you make predictions, especially publicly, you know, if you have a podcast, and most of you probably don't, but if you do or when you get one, um, when you make a, a certain... Like, a public declaration, you start to look for that to be true. So you can be right because as human beings, we all want to be right. And so I, you know, I tend not to do that. Now in private, I'll talk, you know, with you, I showed you um, evidence earlier that I did pick Navarrete for the fight, which I don't remember because um, I just talk so much nonsense here. So, um, so my heart, when this fight first got announced, when it's first thought about my belief, same as you. Lomachenko decision, all right? Now, if I think about it, though, if I think about it, I know that top rank is not stupid. This was the point that I was trying to think of uh, that I forgot. This is the point, but go on. Top rank is not stupid. And for all that we say about Bob Arum, Bob Arum is a cold-blooded individual. He knew, he knows when guys are for, you know, a little mean here, but when guys are done, he knows when it's time to move on to the next thing. And he's been in the business for decades and decades. And for some, some way, somehow he, we have not got rid of him. We've seen many guys come and go and, uh, Bob Arum's still here. So I'm here to tell you that I don't think top rank would have made this fight, especially when you consider the bickering financially between the two parties. And remember, remember, the whole TFEMO holding up based off of money thing that we recently dealt with, oh, no, 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 This I did a podcast on this. There's just so much to this fight where TFEMO wasn't happy and Lomachenko wasn't happy. And at, do you remember at that point where everyone thought that TFEMO, or not TFEMO, Lomachenko was being the diva about the matchmaking here and about the fight getting signed? Now, we've come a long way. And we've forgotten a lot about that. And thanks to the pandemic, we have. But I don't think if if this weren't going to be the case, Top Rank would have. And so, my, you know, I just feel like Top Rank, they know something here. They know what they want. And they would not rush Tiafimo, who looks like he is going to be a bona fide star in the sport. I don't think that they make this fight at this point if they knew some if if they thought that Lomachenko was going to be the same Lomachenko we saw just slicing and dicing Nicholas Walters although you may want to believe that Nick they always knew Nicholas was not a very good fighter I mean I could have told so they definitely knew about Walters but yeah that was that was the point that I was also um I was struggling to think of but so it poses the question do you trust at least for us do we trust our heart or do we trust the machine well, what I'll say is the logic that you only know that top rank knows something that we don't and that they are lining up their new generation to replace their old generation. It relies on one very key point, which is the old generation has to be ready to go. Mm-hmm. And at 32, if this was um, Francisco Vargas ready to go, if this was 
I don't know. Name a hundred other people that I can't think of right now. Andre Berto. This ain't Berto. This is the raw dog. <laughs> um, that's a drop from uh, Brian Campbell's podcast. I know you don't listen, but some of our some of our listeners will have enjoyed that one. Um, no, nah, I don't. Listen. Well, you're missing out. Um, really, really, Brian Campbell. Hey, man, Brian Campbell, Rafe Boogs. Don't hate, man. It's, that it's good fun. Intermission it's good fun. sucked. It's good fun. And, and I'm not. The concept of the intermission was okay, but the the guys talking, Lance Thomas and um, Lance. All right, now you're just all right, come on. Luke Thomas, Brian Campbell, Morning Combat, Showtime. You get it. I don't like it. All right, man. Well, the point wasn't to get onto the intermission of the Showtime pay per view. The point was to say that the idea is that Lomachenko has to be just a guy. Just he's just a really really good guy. And really, really good guys lose at 32 to younger, really, really good guys at 23 all the time. But if Lomachenko is an all-time great, that don't apply to him. Yes. That didn't apply. It that didn't apply to Floyd at 33. Didn't apply to Floyd at 36. Didn't apply to Floyd at 37 or at 40. And it didn't apply to Pacquiao at 40, 41. And so, didn't apply to Ric Flair when you know he had to put Bret Hart over in '92. Didn't apply to Diesel when he had to put Kev, uh, Mabel over in '95. Exactly, <laughs> exactly the same thing. Yeah, no doubt. It didn't. It didn't apply to Ric Flair when he had to put. Uh, no, or uh, it didn't apply to Triple H when he had to put Booker T over. Because he didn't. Because uh, <laughs> he just buried him. <laughs> Yes, you get it. You get it. It didn't apply to Brock Lesnar when it came to Roman Reigns. Um, but yeah, to, to to get back on track to that. Actually, boxing. my examples were of the guy actually losing but still getting over. You actually picked the, the right examples. <laughs> the way, where they where they decided he wasn't getting over and he didn't get over. Yeah. Or, or now a more modern example of Cody Rose versus anybody. <laughs> But yeah, back back to the uh, the actual boxing conversation, Lomachenko Lopez. If Lomachenko is who I and a lot of other people think he is, which is an all time great featherweight, super featherweight, lightweight, maybe he beats this guy who's he beats him. Even no matter what top rank thinks, maybe top rank thinks that Lomachenko or that Tiafimo is their next star. Maybe they think that Tiafimo has all of the attributes. Maybe he does. I mean, just just like um, I mean, it's the most obvious comparison in the world. But just like Canelo did, that doesn't mean he could be Floyd. Well, and so when it well, just just to actually give a complete coherent thought before I uh, pass it back to you, like just because they want Tiafimo to win, and just because they think maybe it could happen, it's it's they might have more information than me, just as a lay person watching. But I still see the conundrum between the two options, and I feel very comfortable going with Lomachenko's greatness over the potential of Tiafimo. Like I, I feel comfortable making that decision. That I think Lomachenko is great enough that he's going to do it. And yeah. so that that that's that's that I, I it does give me pause because Top Rank is good. Top Rank knows their shit. Like Bruce Trampler, Carl Moretti, fucking Todd DeBuff. Bob Arum, fucking whoever blocked me on their social media. <laughs> These guys know what the fuck's up. But I think Lomachenko is good enough 
that he kind of transcends them trying to bury him. <laughs> well, if that's what they're trying to do. Well, I, I, that's what I think. And, but I will say this, because I agree with everything you said. The one thing, though, is that Tiafimo has to be great. He's got to be great in order for this to fully be like the, uh, realized. Because we're talking about Lomachenko as an all-time great fighter. And, and even if that kind of bugs you out, then we're you know one of the best fighters of this generation. Go with that, okay? Because I know a lot of you don't like Lomachenko. But in order for that to come to realization, like Canelo... Tiafimo's got to show that he's still a great fighter, even if he loses to Lomachenko, so that we know Top Rank knew this guy was legit, but he wasn't legit enough to beat up this cold-blooded veteran that's been running the game for the past seven years. That's what's got to happen if Lomachenko wins this fight. Now, we both think he's going to win this fight, um, and I think that there's a really good shot that he could get caught. I mean, we cannot just overlook the fact that Lomachenko got dropped by Jorge Linares and that Teofimo Lopez, at least against lower level opposition, has shown that his power is for real. So we both agree on a prediction. Um, you weren't going to hear us disagreeing because I don't think we disagree on too many things. We disagreed on Navarrete via, but I think that's just because you're a fanboy of, you know, the little guys in, in boxing who don't have big backing and promoters and stuff like that. I'm just not going to give it to the doubt. I also just fucking hate Joe Tessitore talking about fucking Navarrete. I'm oh, not going to I mean, that's that. true. Oh. <laughs> that, that probably colors my opinion of that. Speaking it's of just that. Just talking about him like he's like fucking, like he's a superstar. It's like, get real, dude. Speaking of that, okay. Your boy, Aaron Rodgers, that bad man. Did you hear what he said on the Pat McAfee show? Uh, I probably saw it somewhere but no i don't know what you're talking about he they, they basically asked him about something that was said on monday night football and he said well i was watching it but i had it on mute as i've been watching monday night football for the past couple of years on mute and i just had to sit there and laugh so i was like aaron Rodgers knows perhaps the greatest quarterback talent we had seen up until patrick mahomes knew that the espn broadcast booth headlined by one joe tessator was a steaming pile of shit and joe tessator sucked that's how I interpreted it. You can have your own interpretation of that, but that was mine. Any thoughts since, you know, you are the fan of Aaron Rodgers? I mean, yeah, I like your interpretation, you know. That not very good. Yeah, I get behind that. Yeah, the the, the I'm not going to get into this, okay? I'm just not going to get I don't, into I don't, it. I don't I don't Joe Testor is fine. He's he's good. I liked him at Friday Night Fights. I liked when he would call like the third most important college football game. Joe Testor <laughs> is just a classic example of like Someone who, when they get a big property, thinks they need to like deep throat, nine inches deep, no gag reflex. <laughs> they're what, whatever the big property is that they're calling, like in order to please their boss. And it's like, dude, Jesus Christ, just like have faith that you're good enough to do this job, that you don't need to like slob on the knob, fucking break your neck, pull smoking, as our good friend Ring IQ, aka the Jabroni. <laughs> I mean. Like Jesus Christ, <laughs> relax, man. Like, anyways, but who yeah. would have thought Ring IQ would have gotten a shout out on this podcast? No, he Your friend, shout out. he didn't get a shout out. He got a fuck you. <laughs> uh, Your pal there, uh, who uh, a fucking weirdo talks like, oh, you newspaper here. Uh, we got the news here. Uh, <laughs> fucking weirdo. But anyways, yeah, fuck that guy. I think his name is Julius. He can suck a dick. Um, but. 
Point be- point being is Joe Testor is fucking annoying when he's hawking product, but he's like decent at his job when he isn't. Like so. Michael Cole. Yeah, good example. Michael Cole, like calling whatever some like dark raw show or something on the network a while ago or something. He was good at that shit. Or uh, actually, it was the the NXT tournament thing that he called. Yeah. Um, where he didn't have the IFB in his ear. Yeah, dude, he was pretty good at that. And then yeah, all of a sudden he's like, "Ah, yeah, brought to you by Snickers, the big dog, Roman Reigns." <laughs> Shut the fuck up, you fucking loser. Oh man, I, I actually, it, you know, my introduction was supposed to be longer today on this episode. I was going to talk about, um, you know, we we had missed out. We haven't done a podcast in a while, so we'd missed out on some storylines. But most notably, and if you don't care about this, um, you're, I'm going to just tell you anyway. There's been like there there was for like a, a span of like four days like just so much drama on boxing Twitter that if you're not involved with it good for you you have a life and you should feel good about yourself and uh, I was just gonna give a little shout out to you know some of our, the n- notorious people on Twitter but we don't really need to get into that um, you know, I mean we can we know? really shouldn't we really shouldn't yeah, you're right you're right uh, you know I, I what do we want to talk about people running scams and shit. Oh, I mean, just like Reg the Regulator, (laughs) scamming off of uh, fake cancer. Uh, Not cool. Don't pretend you have cancer and then solicit money from people. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, if we're going to give you guys advice, definitely do what you want with your life. We're live whatever lifestyle you want, but don't lie to people about, you know, having cancer and things like that. People really do suffer from that and it's not not cool. Also, don't be don't be a racist and then have a podcast where you're like soliciting a bunch of black fighters to come on, while also dropping the N word in DMs. I'm speaking about a gentleman named Marcos. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are those are two storylines of <laughs> boxing Twitter. But if you don't um, partake in boxing social media as much and you're just listening to this podcast for fun, um, the previous nine, nine, the previous ninety seconds were essentially the last two weeks, you know. Yeah. Well, that and plus, um, just some various controversies about fans with sources and other. Oh, you're. I mean, you're caught up in that. They, they. It's so funny. They think you're the burner account of like some employee somewhere. When it's like, uh, you can hear this guy uh, on our podcast from time to time, and you could like, you know, do your. Do your own research. Like, yeah, I'm. I'm clearly not Ray Flores or Ray Mancini. Or, I don't or know. You could be, or whoever that uh, newsboy voice t- you they, did sounded like Ray Mancini. They think I'm Tom, uh, not Tom. Uh, Tim Smith uh, from uh, Premier Boxing Champions uh, Media Relations. It's like, hey man, I'm I'm Rollins. Some call me Deuce. It's all good. Um, but yeah. Uh, Apparently, some weird people like Kevin Ioli and Evan Korn um, like to come up with conspiracy theories. So, hey, um, just for anyone listening who actually cares about this and is two hours deep into this podcast, long enough to care. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely don't work for anyone in boxing. Although I go by a pseudonym, it's true. My real name is not Rollins nor Deuce. But uh, yeah, I'm a real and person. Will you ever not... be revealing your true identity? Um, I mean, only if it's like Bash at the Beach '96 style. If we can, <laughs> if we can pull off something like that, 100, percent I'm down. Uh, so, what would be the equivalent of you revealing yourself Bash at the Beach style? 
I mean, it would have to be post like coronavirus. We got some type of like Reddit meetup, some Sunday puncher meetup. It comes down. There's Fred from Barbershop Conversations trying to start a fight, and I come and I come down. Who's this guy? Oh, what? What? Oh my God! It's the third man. And and then I just bop, hit him with a chair, give him the old leg drop, you know, Hulkster style. And then people are just throwing alcohol, particularly at Barbershop Fred, just because that'd be funny. But uh, also, then then we pose because Hogan must pose. Well, I feel like pose. wouldn't okay. I feel like we're the faces, and Barbershop Conversations is the heel. So technically, you'd be joining up with him. Well, yeah, but the 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 NWO was turning the heels into the baby faces. See, that's the, that's the juxtaposition here, you know. Okay, that's so, that's some real Eric Bischoff revisionist history there. Uh, all right, <laughs> well, we let's move on. Let's move on. I, we've played out this thought experiment long enough. Uh, praise to the listeners if you're still listening. I, I feel like if you like wrestling, you probably love the last couple of minutes of of this podcast. Maybe it was more interesting than anything else that we've said. It's 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 quite possible. I'm not going to rule it out. But uh, that's it. That's all we got for this week. Is we had literally four topics that we wrote down and a couple that we thought we would get to and we didn't. And but you know these are great topics. You know the Canelo situation, the Wilder Fury situation, the Navarrete fight. I think we talked about that maybe a little too long, but like we both were really interested in that fight. And then um, of course Teofimo and Lomachenko, which I think rightfully so deserves a lot of time to talk about it. Um, you know. There's other things that we could get to, and sure, you want to you want to talk about those things? Hit us up on Twitter. Totally. Unless you're Tom Gray and you're a moron who works for The Ring, and uh, you really just don't get basic facts on situations. I don't know. But, um... Yeah, if you work for The Ring, I mean, you can hit me up, but, like, I probably will not be down with you. But, uh... Yeah, just before you sign off, I mean, just because we, we didn't do a podcast about it or, uh, last week, um, Zapata Jabranchik was an awesome fight. It's going to win fight of the year. It's going to probably win round of the year. It probably could win round of the year twice. Um, that was an awesome fight. Uh, it was on ESPN Plus, so it was uh, circulated on ESPN platforms. Unfortunately, it wasn't on the main um, the main deal, but. We would be remiss if at some point in the history of this podcast we didn't um, mention that. It was an awesome fight. Zapata is actually legitimately an awesome fighter. Um, legitimately a top world-level 140-pounder. I thought he beat Ramirez when they fought. Um, and that fight is what people watch boxing for. And not just because it was a slugfest, but because it was a guy who had showed himself to be a superior boxer, but he chose to fight in the most entertaining style possible because it afforded him the ability to win, but also because that's what fighting is about. And so I don't know I just if want I to agree get... with that, but sure. It's a, it sounds well, all right, man. I hear dude, I'm, I'm giving like a waxing poetic relax. Yeah, you are. No, I, but... I think you're not giving Baranchik credit here. Baranchik's all right. Now, <laughs> Go, now no, 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 finish that. Finish that. You're, Brunchik is a very limited fighter. Um, you're going to get me to be negative when I was trying to be 100% positive. I, well, but I was I, trying but, to keep it positive, but say just right. dispute that Brunchik forced him to fight that way. I think that I think that Zapata 
is someone who has power, who fought too cautiously in the biggest fight of his life and got it, in my opinion, taken from him unjustly. And he fought in a much more entertaining, much more dangerous style. And like, what is, uh, what's the saying about boxing? That it's like the ultimate arena of truth. I don't know. Uh, There's a million euphemisms that Larry Merchant probably said a million times, but like ultimately that sort of fight is what you watch boxing for. It's like, there's, there's no pretending there's no, um, you're, you're showing what you're truly about in a fight Mm -hmm. like that. And so I think both guys give credit to both guys, but in particular to Zepeda, because he, he demonstrated what you want out of a fighter. It's someone who's supremely skilled, but also willing to go to that place to where when it's a battle of wills and when it's, when it's a gunfight, he's willing to be the fastest draw. He's, he's willing to be that and he's capable of that. And so I think uh, I'm curious to see Zapeda against another, uh, world level fighter. And so, Zapata in in of himself became more interesting, and just as a tribute to the sport, that was a great fight. So I think uh, it was worth mentioning if we didn't mention anything else from the last couple weeks. The only thing is that you said that you thought Zapata fought too cautiously against Ramirez and had the fight taken from him. But if you think he was too cautious, I don't think the fight was taken from him. He was just too cautious and didn't get the decision. I, I you know I can't really say much more. You said it all very well. So I love the fight. Um, it was ridiculous, and you guys are hearing us talk about a topic that's now two weeks old, and maybe most of you don't care. Um, but j- just so you know, we did talk about this on our Patreon feed, um, so it's not like we don't record podcasts in between the podcasts here. Like everything is immediate over there. So if you're interested in that, go check that out. Um, uh, follow Rollins on Twitter at Ranger Rollins, and you get breaking news. You just had one uh, this past week about Javier Fortuna. Um, you thought you had one today, and I'm not going to say what it is, but you thought, and you'll, you'll get it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I got one, I got one in the draft saved. It's just, I want, there's another, there's a couple components to it and I want it to be complete. I, I can't send like a half baked sources tweet. You're not um, Mike Coppinger. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm definitely not Like, I want that on the record. I am not Mike Coppinger. Um, just because that guy's he's got some weird vibes going on. I don't want to be associated. I don't want to be associated. All right, Nicole, that. settle down. Um, shout out to Nicole Duva. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so signing off on on my part for this podcast, uh, Lomachenko Lopez, huge fight, biggest fight perhaps of the year. It's like the first one versus two, maybe of this year if you don't count the one fifty four fight. Regardless, it's on ESPN. Maybe there'll be a reaction pod uh, on the official feed if it's like a sick fight or something crazy happens. Otherwise, definitely tune in next week to get the reaction from that. And this is just an awesome fight uh, fight month. So get psyched for this fight. Get psyched for the fights to come. Viva boxing. Viva WBC. Viva Mauricio Suleiman. All right. Well, I can't really... I can't say say anything after that. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back.